Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access, my go-to source for the best selection of interesting wines you can't find locally. Rated Best Wine Club by New York Times Wirecutter and the official partner and wine provider of the Michelin Guide. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Check it out today. Hey, just a heads up, if you're interested in ordering Glassman after you listen to this podcast, David has been so nice in offering us a coupon. If you enter Wine for Normal People at checkout, you'll get 10% off. And if you're a patron, go on Patreon. There's even a sweeter deal there. Now let's get to the show. We have never before had on a glassware producer because in the past, it's been a very limited field. One company dominated. I think we all know who that is. And sometimes their products made no sense because like many things in wine, there are too many options and not enough differentiation for normal wine drinkers. But in recent years, new glassware companies have burst onto the scene and I have tried many, many of those glasses, but the only one that actually captured my attention and that I decided to use as more than a sample was Glassvin. They are very light, very thin, and yet somehow more durable than all of their competitors. Glassvin was founded in 2020 by David Kong, who left his job at a hedge fund to start the company. And today his mission is to deliver handcrafted glasses at affordable prices. He was a Forbes 30 under 30 recipient in 2022. Congratulations. That's huge. And today he joins to tell us about the glassware industry and how he created what I think are the best new glasses to hit the market. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. How did you get interested in glassware? Were you already a wine lover? The bigger question is, all of us are frustrated with glassware, but you actually did something about it. So I'm curious to know how all of this actually evolved. So it's going to be a love story. We'll see it. We got time. The, what the short version of that is. But I, yes, I love wine. I watched the films like Psalm, uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, whatever. And I got really into like the whole blind tasting thing. I'm like a math stats background. Mm-hmm. So it was very important that I could figure out what a wine was. Otherwise, then I'm just paying for like a a label or something. But then I realized I could actually figure out what a wine was just from tasting it. And that that started this journey. And like you said, I'm I'm only around 30, so I haven't been drinking wine for that long. But maybe I've been drinking wine for like 10 years. And yeah, I came to New York City. I came from Toronto. Toronto's, it's not the best scene for wine for various really? reasons. We can get into it. Yeah, they have this uh, government thing. Yeah, so well, everything there's has the LCBO. There. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, in a lot of our, we have a lot of Canadian listeners. You guys complain, but our system is also really, really bad down here too. As you know, there's 50 different countries essentially dealing in liquor laws. <laughs> it's not easy in either places, but if my measure is like, can I find a Condrieu to try to figure out what a Condrieu tastes like? I can't do that in Toronto, wow. uh, or at least when I was there. It's very right. hard to like. If you go in the LCBO website and search Conjure, I don't know what you'll find, but here you can you'll, you'll get something delivered within a two days. So, so I came to New York City liking wine, but honestly, just not have had drunk enough different wines to really understand wine. And then I I come to New York and I'm just like, oh my gosh, every single restaurant has a thirty page wine list there's like an unlimited amount of things to drink 
And the start of the story is for glassware is probably what you'd expect. It was at uh, Aldo Sam Wine Bar, and he reps Zaltos. This is the first time I used Zaltos because that thing didn't exist in Toronto back when I was there. So I was like, wow, these glasses are nuts. They make this experience way better. Then what I started doing was trying to buy Zaltos at not a crazy price. Good luck. At the time, they were like $60. <laughs> well, if Wait, you're in the industry- Wait, what year was this? Because for a few years, you haven't been able to even get Zaltos. Factory went offline during COVID. Yeah, we'll talk yeah. about that. But okay, in 20, dying to this know was about 20, that. This was 2015. So okay. I moved to the New York around 2015. Maybe it was 2016, something like that. Okay. And this is like when Zalto was having its like stratospheric rise a $20 million company. Yeah. yeah, because I had never really heard of them before a few years ago. It is true. I mean, again, it was mostly, it was Riedel, it was Spiegelau, there was Schatzweisel, Stotzel. Yeah, those are the ones I'd heard of too. And and Zalto kind of came out of nowhere. At, I think they started in 2008, but it really, in, at least in the US, I don't can't speak for Europe, but at least in the US, it's, I think it took off roughly around um, 2014 or whatever. I started trying to get these glasses for way less than $60. Partly because they break so much, <laughs> yes. but you, you you have to use them. Once you use them, you can't go back. It's right. like, I don't know what the best analogy is, but it's, I don't know, like a, a larger monitor. Like once you use, you use a larger monitor, you can't go back to a smaller monitor or same with iPhones or whatever. Yeah. If you have like anyway. real chocolate, it's really hard to have M&Ms yeah. after that. Exactly. And it's not that expensive in the scheme of how much you're spending on wine. It's probably like 5% of your wine spender or even less or whatever. Anyway, so I actually started buying Zaltos from overseas because they were cheaper overseas. And it actually got, it was cheaper to get Zaltos into the country just by buying it there. And then you get a VAT refund. And then obviously shipping is a ton, but it still ended up being cheaper. It was probably like 40 bucks instead of 60 bucks or something. You're scrappy. I should have thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was only 23 or whatever, 24 at the time. So I... I didn't have a ton of money or whatever, but I wanted a nice Zaltos. So then, well, I was effectively importing these glasses. It, to make it work, like you had to import 20, 30 glasses at a time. Why well, didn't need 20, 30 glasses? So then I was like, hey, friends, do you guys want these glasses? And I'll sell it to you at the price I was getting it at, which is $40. Yeah. So I I started Glassman basically back in 2015 when I was importing Zaltos and selling it. I'm sure they would not be happy to know that, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Well, everything I was doing was totally legal. Uh, Yeah, and you were just selling them to friends. I mean, people do that all the time on whatever. You do it in Nextdoor or Craigslist. It's a free world. It's a free free society. I mean, I I, theoretically, I can bring in Zaltos and sell them to whoever I want. And that's totally fine on me. Whoever sold it to me might not Maybe they shouldn't have done that. I don't know. Right. But, and other people were doing this too. I, I could get into like the whole history of Grassel and all that stuff, some other brands that they were doing. They, a lot of people were getting Zaltos out of cheap. And actually, the easiest way for anyone in the wine industry was just to like call up your restaurant and the restaurant would buy it from Grand Cru Selections right. for $40 and then give it to you for $40. That yeah. was the original way. Of, but I, I didn't have those connections. I still don't have that many connections. Anyway. I was like, okay, if I can get good glasses into the U.S. at a price of 40 bucks, I know there's demand for it because I was already able to sell it to my friends at that price. So at some point after I quit my job, I was like, okay, well, what can I import? Can I import Zaltos? Can I import another brand? There's all these other brands out there. So my first thought 
was I'm going to import something. And probably like four hours later, after thinking through this idea, I was like, why would I import something when I can just make it myself and create my own brand? Because at the end of the day, the value isn't from the importation of the glasses. It's from building a brand. Right. Uh, and at the same time, this was pre-COVID when the DTC companies, were, were that was like the hottest thing was DTC right. companies, right? right? That's when I um, decided that I was going to start a glassware DTC company. And I was thinking, is there any other glassware DTC company? Think about that. They, no. It doesn't exist. No. Glassware is a big market. Riedel does 300 million of revenue. I don't know what percentage of the market they are, but it's at least uh, just wine glasses is has to be like a billion dollars. And I was like, well, maybe I can be 10% of that and create the $100 million DTC brand. And that's how I started Glassman. <laughs> but so, and so there was no thought of Riedel has so much of the market. And was your target consumer really just people? Was it consumers yes. or was it restaurants or did that come later? The restaurants came later. At the start, it was com- the idea was DTC. And my friends were starting DTC companies. I have two friends that each started really great DTC companies in Canada. And I was like, I want to start one as well. Riedel never really came into the picture. I used them more as how great I can be. Maybe one day I can have 300 million of revenue like Riedel does. Right. Right. That's how I thought about it. What do you have to do? What kind of research do you have to do into glassware to get into this? And what was the process? How did you figure out and dig into this? And what are the behind the scenes stuff yeah. that we have no idea about? Because I was thinking about it as as we were talking about getting together on this. How much do I actually know? Okay, I've seen artisans in Vermont blow glass before. Yeah, it's you different. Know? You can watch the real videos and, and watch people blow glass. But how do you do this on a scale where you can actually make money and it's such a labor intensive thing? And how did you even figure any of this out? It's a really interesting rabbit hole, isn't it? Well, it took a long time. You said my company started in 2020. That's when we started selling glasses. But I quit my job in end of 2018. So I had a, basically a full year and two months to figure this out. I did not work anywhere at the time. Wow. Um, so I, had, I started two wine businesses. This was one of them. So I, I was spending a lot of time figuring this stuff out. And honestly, there's no shortcut, I don't think, to working it out. I'm still finding factories today. You can't just Google like, where to make him little wine glasses, (laughs) you know? But I go through Instagram sometimes. I find these smaller producers and I check if they have a factory and then I email them or I DM them on Instagram and I just say, we sell tens of thousands of wine glasses. Would you like to work with us? So yeah, we have a nice little network of hand-blown wine glass factories. Take us through how glasses are actually made so that then we can figure out the factory stuff after that. So what are they made out of? I know glass, obviously, but are all glasses of the same material? And can you go through the process of how a glass is made? Sure. No, not all glass is the same material. Well, it's it's roughly the same material, but the the mix and stuff differs whether it's high-end glass versus low-end glass. For the discussions here, we're really only talking about high-end glassware. That's what we sell. That's what everyone else in my handle wine glass industry sells. Everyone probably has roughly the same mix of ingredients. What those ingredients are, I have it somewhere, but I really wouldn't. I wouldn't be like they would just be like chemical compounds, and I wouldn't be able to explain to you why like this needs to be at this percentage or whatever. 
Right, right, right. What are lower end glasses made out of? Are they made out of the same thing, just lesser quality? Or are they made out of something completely different? Okay, so it's all basically the same stuff. Yes, and that might not be entirely correct for the entire glass or industry there might be some glass that's made on something i don't even know but uh at Be- least for wine this glasses, is right we're ta- we're just yeah. assuming most of the stuff that people are buying are made out of the same kind of compounds yes exactly like Got the it. only thing i know is that there's no lead and there's no cadmium because those right. are like the two no-nos anyway it's different than the vermont thing you see because it's not like a couple guys blowing glass that's not what this looks like right. this is like a factory this is effectively an assembly line for glassware, but the glassware is hand blown. There are no machines. So in Vermont, the guys are shaping the glass and that takes a lot of time. Note here, there's a mold. There's a wooden mold. And by the way, if you go on our website, glass.ven, um, you'll be able to see how it looks. Uh, but, I can post yeah, pictures in the show notes also. I looked at it, but I want you to explain how it goes. Yeah, so there's this wooden mold and the guy just basically blows the glass and it forms around that mold. That's why each glass roughly has the same shape. So that part is kind of determined already. So right now everything is hot. Everything is 1600 degrees and the stem is basically attached as like a knob at the bottom of the glass and then stretched to the desired length. And then the base is another thing that's stuck on and then shaped. It has to happen very quickly before everything cools down, right? I want to say something like one glass can be made in about a minute or something. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's pretty good. I mean, we I know how many, I, I probably make, I don't know, 30,000 glasses a year right now, 40,000, whatever. Zalto probably makes 10 times what I make. There's a lot of this happening. It has to happen at a pretty fast rate to supply the world with their need for hand-blown wine glasses. What's the difference between the hand-blown glassware and machine-made glassware? I'm not an expert on the machine-made stuff. I think especially some of the higher-end machine-made stuff right now, a lot of it is just like a machine version of what I just said. Right. The cheap machine-made stuff, I believe, now I could be totally off about this, but this is my sense. The cheap machine-made stuff, you can feel a little ridge yeah, there's seams. Uh, on the stem. Yes, there are seams. And, and there's sometimes seams on the glass itself. And I just know this from, we talked before about the Epicurious article. Those cheap glasses, you can actually sometimes find a seam on the glass itself where right. the machine put it together. So Which it's is, definitely different. Once I feel that, especially at a restaurant, I'm like, yuck. <laughs> it's really not a great experience as a, at all. But that's what most glass is. Just using Riedel as, as an example, most of their glasses are not hand-blown. So they are machines. So you'll find that even in Riedel's, which are supposed to be so fancy. But I think the big distinction here is that people often think that Riedel is all hand-blown and it is absolutely not. And they're very clear about it on their site about what is machine-made and what isn't. So there's a distinction between what you're doing and what they're doing at their high end and those machine-made glasses. But I do also want to ask What about the thinness? Your glasses are so thin. And yet the difference that I really love about them is that they don't feel quite as scary as a Zalto. Zaltos are a little bit scary. I don't know (laughs) why, but your glasses seems as thin, but it just seems durable. How are you balancing that? Is there a trick to that? So let me just back up one second about the whole Riedel machine made situation. So the seams occur if it is a mold for the entire glass 
or when it's literally like they have molds for different pieces and they stick it together. That's your crap, less than $5 a glass stuff. Right. Rito also makes high-end machine-made glasses and Gabriel also makes high-end machine-made glasses. And, and they're actually doing very well, to be honest. If I think about who my competitors are, that is actually a very important competitor to me because they kind of sell about the same price as me. They're machine-made, I'm hand-blown. They're high-quality machine-made, which means they actually stretch the stem and it's not a mold. The stem is not a mold. They, they stretch it exactly the same way that a guy, a human would stretch it, except a machine would Does stretch it. it. Yeah. And then I'll also mention Riedel does not really play in the hand-blown wine glass market. That's one thing that for whatever reason, they've decided that they're not going to touch. They they definitely have some, but their market share is tiny. They're smaller than we would be. I don't know globally, but at least in the US, they'd be probably like 20% of what we are. And we started two years ago. They've been around for 300 years. To your question about based on how thin it is, it's always a discussion with myself, with the customers and stuff of how light and how durable it's a trade-off effectively we're very happy with where we've landed especially now that we do work with all these restaurants it's very clear when it hits the mark for them because those guys are really worried about both things they're worried about it feeling really special because those guys are marking up their wines by five times right so they need to offer the customer something that they're not going to get at home and this is one major way that they're offering that But at the same time, they don't want to have to replace their glasses every two months. So this one restaurant in New York uses one of my competitors and they were like breaking three of them every day or something. And I was like, calculating, like, wow, these guys are sending $50,000 every year on (laughs) this stuff. When you actually do the math and you just think about who's handling it, because in, in New York, the servers are much more professional, but not everybody is. And also you got customers who break it and you've got to try to limit the chances of that happening. I can't even imagine only using Zalto. I also, so I will tell you that for that Epicurious article, Zalto was furious, even though I said they were the best glass, they were furious because I said I wouldn't <laughs> put them in the dishwasher. And they actually made us change the article and say that they say that their stuff is dishwasher safe. But then I pushed back and said, well, but I would never put those in the dishwasher. But yours are dishwasher safe. Mine are 100% dishwasher safe. If they break in a dishwasher, give me an email. We we actually have a form on our website where if you break it in a dishwasher, you could get a replacement. You can self-serve it. Being dishwasher safe is the starting point. Like you can't make a wine glass that's not dishwasher safe. And the reason why Zalto is pushing back on you on that is because they are theoretically dishwasher safe too. Like they sell all this stuff to these restaurants. These restaurants are not washing it by hand. I've had some pretty bad experiences with Zalto in a dishwasher as well. I would never. The other secret that I don't think people talk about because this is such a cottage industry is that Zalto's changed their factory. What what happened? I don't know what happened during COVID. They were gone. And now they're 85. They raised the price of the glass. Yes. And now they are only sold on wine enthusiasts. It's really hard to get them anywhere else, really. It was a real shame because, like I said, I did that article in like 2019, 2020, something like that, and recommended them and no one could get them after that. It was very difficult. And I was very angry because I was like, why are these? And my, I was getting my PR person to send around and being like, I mean, the strategist was really nice to us and put us right beside Zalto. So all the people who couldn't buy Zaltos ended up buying Hourglass. Yes. But- Where I was going to go with that is that Zalto, first of all, they move factories. They're not made in Austria anymore. 
Well, which is fine. Like it doesn't matter where they're made. But with that change, what I've also noticed is that their uh, weight has gone up. So their universal glass used to be about 100 grams, and now they're 110 grams. Huh. And I think part of the reason why they did that was probably because they were probably breaking a little too much yep. uh, in the dishwasher. So I feel like they're probably making some of these changes so that this doesn't recur. So there's a trade-off. That's really interesting. And that's constantly something that you have to worry about. Is there a point at which you noticed when you are making the glasses that the thinness makes the flavor pop? There's some sort of formula that you came up with. Obviously, as you're making these glasses, you're tasting through the wines. I know from doing this experiment myself that it makes an enormous difference. And so was there a point at which you were like, okay, what's the thickest possible glass we could do so that we can have durability, but at the same time have a taste really good? And that was what you settled on? Is that how that happened? Roughly speaking, the lighter the glass, the better the wine's going to taste. It's just that simple. Yeah. But there's a point where it becomes less important because at some point, it's better to just have a more durable glass At the same time, we have restaurant customers who have, it's a very busy restaurant and they can't deal with those. So we have another brand coming out that's heavier. And so it really depends on what the customer needs. What would you want people to know about glassware? It's a small industry, but people are really obsessed with it. What do you think people are most confused about or what do you think misperceptions about the industry are what are things that you would like to disabuse people of you're spending so much money on the wine and a a better glass is just going to make that wine 20 percent better or 30 percent better i want to remind you again that david has offered a discount wine for normal people at checkout is the coupon code that's going to give you a discount at purchase he's such a great guy such a fantastic story and a Super interesting show. I hope you're enjoying this. And you're going to need something to put in those glass bins. So guess what you're going to do? You're going to go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP, wineaccess.com slash WFMP. You'll get 10% off your first order. These are wines curated from around the world by the most credentialed team out there. And let me tell you something. The Wine for Normal People Wine Access Wine Club is shipping now, and the selections are spectacular. The wines track my trip through Tuscany and a little bit of Piedmont just to get people inspired because we're going to be doing shows on it. The San Filippo Rosso di Montalcino, oh my gosh, knocked my socks off. These are wines that are very difficult to get elsewhere. Wine access should be one of your go-to places to find hard-to-find wines. They have a collection of wines. Many are available for repurchase. Free shipping's included when you spend $150. That is not a whole lot. And that is going to save you a lot of money. And they've got a buy and hold feature. You have up to 30 days to reach that $150 free shipping threshold. If you've never checked them out before, now is the time. Wineaccess.com slash WFMP will take you to the page. You will get 10% off your first order and you can see the wines that I'm loving right now. Wineaccess.com slash WFMP. And don't forget, hey, listen, if you want a deeper discount and special VIP perks from people like David at Glassman, you got to join Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 
Wine for Normal People, so much extra coverage, hangouts from my travels, things that you will not get anywhere else. Patreon is where I spend all my time. You notice I don't post a whole lot on social media. If you follow me there, it's because all my posting goes on Patreon. If you really love the podcast, please consider joining. This is what keeps us afloat. Patreon.com slash Wine for Normal People. Get all those perks today and become part of the best community in wine. And don't forget, new classes, Wine for Normal People com slash classes. We got wines of South Africa coming up. We've got wines of Tuscany, uh, which is a both Europe and the US time zones. Check it out today. Some really great classes and some new ones that are getting posted soon. Check out all this stuff today. I can't wait to see you. And now let's get back to this amazing, really fascinating show about glassware with David Kong. If you're somebody who really, really enjoys wine, and you drink a variety of stuff, I think that at that point, you should definitely think about investing in glassware. Because if you're somebody who really likes to delve into the flavors of wine and explore it, and you're not just drinking it to drink it and chug it, then you definitely deserve to invest in a glass that's going to make a difference because it does make a difference. It is very hard to explain that to people until they can taste two things side by side. However... However, this is like my line in the sand, and it looks like you did this too, and I'm curious to know how you came to this. You pared down the line into the things that, there's another thing I really love about Glassfin, because you've got the universal, yeah. the white glass, you have a burgundy, a Bordeaux, a champagne, a dessert class, and a decanter, and you have a couple of variations, but you don't have a bazillion things as yes. you know, you're in business, scope creep. So to me, this is an ideal line because it's got all of the things that you need without complicating things. They will make a glass for any, they'll make a glass for Mavrud if you want to. It seems like there are glasses for everything. And the problem is that regular people, when they go on a website and see that there's a Nebbiolo glass and there's a blah, blah, blah glass and this and that, it is incredibly confusing. And then yes. that is the point at which people, they don't want to buy anymore because it's just yes. too confusing. Wine itself is confusing enough. And then to layer that on top, was that a conscious decision that you were like, look, we're going to keep it simple? Yes, absolutely. There's definitely this concept of paradox of choice. This is where I think Riedel kind of, I, and I respect Riedel in uh, very much, but but I, I I don't know why they they're doing what they're doing. Like it doesn't exactly make sense. It probably compl- overcomplicates their production process. Types of glasses, we're very focused on what our customers want and what our customers need. That's how you create a business. You're not just designing stuff for the sake of designing things. You're asking your customers what they want and what they need. Here's a really mundane example of this happening. So for example, our glasses are 23 and a half centimeters high. Why are they 23 and a half centimeters high? Because that's, that's like, but so it fits in your cabinet. It fits in your cabinet, but it's, it's big enough. Like people like bigger wine glasses. Right. Okay. I just a fact, I don't know why, but some people or some restaurants don't have a shelf that can fit a 23 and a half centimeter glasses. So they're, they're asking for 20 centimeter high glasses. So we're going to come out with a glass that's 20 centimeters high. We're we're trying to figure out what our customers need and we're delivering to them. And our customers definitely don't need a Nebbiolo glass. <laughs> Restaurants don't want to have more skews than they need to. Right. So they're going to want one, like maybe they want a, one that they can serve their Nebbiolos and Chardonnays and uh, Pinots or whatever. So if we can group things together right. and be like, this can be used for 
these five different things, that's way better. And the thing, if you look at our glasses, they're not shaped in a crazy, weird way. No, not at right? all. I, there are some of those ones right now with the big bulge in the middle, the wings and all of that kind of stuff. Someone sent me those yeah. recently. They're a little kooky. I don't think it probably does anything to help the wine, although, of course, they claim it does. But at the same time, I think people want something that l the wine looks attractive in. Honestly, it's a sensory experience. People want it to look nice. But it also, you're right, it can't be kooky and it's got to fit in the cabinet. We have this issue with wine bottles also not being able to fit in people's wine fridges and stuff. And it's like, you know, we just need a universal bottle. We need things that make sense. And it yeah. seems like, as I say this, I feel like I say this every single podcast. I'm sorry, guys. I know you you listen to me <laughs> and I say this every single time. Just because you can do something does not mean that you should do it. And I feel like glassware, <laughs> that's like, I feel like that's my, that should be my new motto because I say it all the time. I feel like that's the thing about glassware. It's like, just because you can make 75 different kinds of decanters does not mean that you should because in the end it just winds up confusing things and unfortunately I think it can turn people off and that yeah. that's a big big problem because you, it's the last thing you want to do is that yeah there's just no merit in it so where are your factories are they just all over the world we have factories in China and well and they're not my factories, they're factories yeah 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 right? your partner factories. so we have we have factories in China we have factories in Czech Republic, the majority is coming from China. Um, and it's more affordable that way. That's how you can do it more affordably, right? That's one of the reasons. But the other main reason is because we don't have an importer. We don't have a distributor. When you email me to get glasses for your restaurant, you're talking directly to me. Right. Um, and people are always so... very surprised by that, aren't they? <laughs> That's when people write me and I'm like, yep, I'm a one person company. So here we go. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you if, if your glasses break in the dishwasher, you, you email the hello at Glaston. I'm the person that's responding to that. Right. A lot of people are like, hey, I know that you don't have economies of scale. And I'm like, well, I actually don't have diseconomies of scale. That's a really, it's a really interesting thing. So I thought of Warby Parker and glasses. Ha ha ha. You yeah. know, I feel like they had an, there's one overpriced company that did everything. Then Warby Parker came in, they took the market by storm and they were able to really start building this story. Did you look at them at all when you were doing this or other companies like that, that disrupted a bit? Or we, was this I, just purely just, I'm going to make better glasses? No, I, I didn't really look at other DTC companies other than to just be like, hey, if these guys could go from nothing. The thing when you start a brand is, well, there's all these existing brands out there. How am I going to compete with them when they don't, when no one knows who I am? I'm starting from zero. Well, that's where these examples really come in handy. You're like, well, Brooklyn and came from absolutely nowhere. Warby Parker came from nowhere. So yeah, there's a path to creating a new company. And honestly, in the glassware space, the brand recognition is not actually that high. How many people in America know what Riedel is? It's like zero. probably not actually that high. Yes, not. I think I actually have an easier, almost an easier uh, go-to-market kind of strategy than some of the ones that you've mentioned. And it's true. It is a niche product. And as long as you can build a better glass for less money, I think people are pretty excited about it. Yeah. You did, though, launch during COVID. So was that a problem or because you were DTC, it was awesome? So it's hard for me to say because we never had any historical financials before COVID. Right. But in theory, 
COVID should have helped us. Yes. yes. Right. Right. Uh, and well, first of all, I wasn't even thinking about restaurants. The restaurants started calling me and I was like, okay, well, now we need to set up a wholesale program. But it was great to have consumers be first because it's if you can hit like a thousand consumers and within those thousand consumers, probably 10 of them are sommeliers. And those 10 sommeliers are telling their restaurants about it. So in many ways, the COVID, I think if you look at it overall, because we do a lot of restaurant business, obviously COVID wasn't good for restaurants. Right. Well, COVID was good for restaurants in a different way. Like it was bad for restaurants. So a lot of restaurants shut down. So a lot of new restaurants came out and those people needed new glasses. So actually probably helped us in, in an indirect way there. But during COVID, we got so many people adopting our product out of nowhere, just people telling each other we did no marketing. And those people, some of them were sommeliers or they had friends that were sommeliers. Some people brought the glass into the restaurant. That's actually, I think, what happened when we got Cato, this mission to serve in LA. And the guy just saw someone bring it in and was like, oh, that's an alternative to Zalto. And called me up and then we sold them a lot of glassware. So That's awesome. It's like have, having your own little marketing team on the ground. <laughs> well, it is. And there are people like us who are one-person companies and who deal in the world of consumers. And, and we care about them and we care about what they want and what they like. The problem is the three-tier distribution system in wine puts producers so far away from consumers that most of the time they have absolutely no idea what's happening at the end of it. But we are in a pretty unique position because we actually are we're dealing with the best people in the industry, which are the end consumers, and <laughs> they can tell you what they want. It would behoove every producer on earth. People would do a lot better if they could connect directly with consumers because totally. wine consumers are, again, my audience is very special and I obviously love them, but they're cool and they're not going to be shy and they're going to tell you what they want and they're going to help you and they're they're always willing to get involved. It's a really unique industry and in that it's a kind of, it's a really community-oriented industry. So is that how you came up with GV Home? And could you please talk about how you did it on a Kickstarter campaign? I love this. I love how scrappy you are. <laughs> you know, this is like something I feel like, I mean, I've got Patreon, right? So that's my version of the the Kickstarter. I could never have continued to do a podcast without Patreon. So for you, you make a product. So Kickstarter makes more sense for you. But it's the same thing. You ask consumers to help because otherwise we can't do what we do without them. Yeah. So you're mentioning closest to the customer. So a lot of people talk about our product as in great prices and great quality. And yes, those are obviously two very important things. But there's a third thing that's really important about our company that no one else in this industry does. And that's great customer service, especially if you're a restaurant, but if you're a consumer too. Like consumer is a little bit easier, but like if you're a restaurant, I'm the owner of the company and I'm here responding to your text and coming into your restaurant. And if you're like, hey, I need something that fits in my cabinet, I'm here to, to do that for you. Right. So I think those are our, our three main things. So, okay, I'll talk about GV Home. I'm not sure if that name is going to stick even. We'll see. Because I made it, and then now I'm having second thoughts about the name. But whatever, in some way, it's going to stick. Well, the product is going to happen, right? So whether or not it's called happen. that, the product is happening, and it's really cool. So please talk about it. So it really stemmed from these high-end machine-made glasses. Right. That are in the market. And a lot of them are not super nice. And they're everywhere. Like you go to a restaurant and you're like, oh my God, that's that glass again. So a lot of how I do research is literally just going to restaurants and seeing what people are doing. I don't know that there's a better way to do it than to actually right. get in because you can have every number in the world. But when you go and actually talk to people about what's going on and you hear the same things over and over again, then I don't think 
that any data is going to capture the fact that there's some groundswell going on that people can tell you about. I think it's a great idea. So if you think about Glaston, like that's really there as an alternative to Salto and uh, all the other hand-blown wine glasses that are out there. So really GV Home is an alternative to all the high-end machine-made glasses that are out there. We're trying to price our product so that our hand-blown glasses are cheaper than the machine-made glasses. Well, so explain that because you didn't say that the GV Home are hand-blown, right? Yes. That's so nuts. Everything we do, everything we do is hand-blown. We love hand-blown products. It's kind of like the opposite where the world is kind of moving. And it's like one of the few industries where I feel like hand-blown products are actually we could deliver it at a cheaper price of the Bashibe glasses. It's kind of crazy that that's that, nuts. That, that can happen. The way I think about it is the wine that you drink is is handmade, right? Or at least hopefully it's handmade. Uh, you would hope that it's handmade. Yes, you... So it's actually really nice. The glass that you have it in is also handmade. One of the great things about handmade products is lower batch sizes. So if you want to make a machine-made glass, you probably have to start with 30,000 or something. Oh my glasses. gosh. And we're a small company. We we probably sell 30,000 glasses in a in a year or something. So hopefully more this year, but we want to have a glass for every glass that someone needs. So like we're starting to make cocktail glasses, we're, try- we're making water glasses, beer glasses, whatever. Like there's so many different types, types of cocktails that need different kinds of glasses. And we want to have a solution to all of those. And so that's why we're mostly focused on hand-blown products. And if you take a nice machine-made glass, put a nice hand-blown product like our GV Home product, and you put it side by side, you're like, wait, the hand-blown glass is nicer, it's lighter, it's thinner, and it's cheaper. It's exactly what you're saying. It's nice to know there's a human on the other side of it. I mean, I know it's a factory, but there's still some artisanship. You've got to do some artistry in order to make those glasses, even in a factory. You definitely have to think a bit more about it it's going to take some skill to work in a, a, yeah. a hand-blown glass factory versus a machine factory where you're like, here's a button and I'll just push it and hopefully nothing totally. breaks. I don't know the exact numbers, but the number of people that we're feeding, that's a really <laughs> weird way to put it maybe, but like, yeah, like there's a lot of employment at the end of the line that's like creating these glasses. And obviously we don't we don't really talk about that because we're really focused on just the product, but that is the end result. It's huge. The economic prosperity that we help to create, obviously we're not like the main thing, but one of the things that we do, we talked about them being made in China at one point, and we're the highest quality glassware that's coming out of China. We're probably the highest dollar per glass that anyone is paying in the whole country. Well, no one is using a hand, no one's using the services in China that you're using. They're using it for the factory machine made stuff. They're not looking for, I mean, it's really- Pretty stuff. cool that you went out and looked for that and right. realized, so China is a great place to source this stuff because the prices are lower. But at the same time, you could still find artisans who are making things on a smaller scale in a smaller factory. It doesn't have to be right. bad quality. Eastern Europe, the same thing. So everybody wants to make their glasses in Austria or Germany. But if you go to Czech Republic or into deeper into Eastern Europe, People are willing to work for a little bit less, but the quality is still high and they have the know-how. There's a lot of merit in that. So if you think about uh, the guy that's blowing the glass, right? So we probably pay twice anything else they're making. We think what we're doing is really, really helpful for that. I think it's fantastic. So you're young. Are you even 30? You're not even 30 yet. I'm 31. (laughs) Oh God, you're so old now. Yeah. Okay. So you're 31 
And I'm sure that you keep up with some of the wine trade publications. And there's all of these people saying young people aren't drinking. It's such a disappointment. And I actually think it's way more nuanced than that. And I think that it is a completely different. Again, it's like the kind of thing where, okay, if you look at the numbers, they say one thing. And if you actually go talk to people, it's another thing. You're closer to this demographic than I am. So what do you think is going on with younger people and the generations that you're kind of on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z. Curious to hear what you think. Well, you, I think you would know more about this topic than I do, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a few things. One, you mentioned I was 30 under 30. Uh, that category used to be called food and wine, and now it's called food and beverage or food and drink or something. They had to change the name because right there's just no 30 under 30s in the wine industry. I, I, there's definitely thir- under 30s, but like if you look at the awards, like there were years where there were just be- last year there was no one, I don't think, in the wine industry. I was the only one of the 30 that was in the wine industry. Most of them are on the food or beers or spirits or whatever. I think it's true that younger people are less engaged with this. I think that's an opportunity for us in the sense that none of the incumbents really are worried about the younger segment. No way. And you can see that in their websites and marketing that they do and... There's a lot of people who have a lot of money in their 30s and 40s that like wine. And we're going to give those people the experience that they expect because they, they're buying products from other companies and they're used to that. But then when you go to wine, you're like, oh, what the heck? Like, what's this website? It doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me. So there's this, I mean, I'm not going to mention the, the writer, but there's this writer who wrote an article about this trend. And we I, I sent him... Um, samples back in 2020 and i was just thinking well if this is a trend and you don't like it then one thing you could have done to help really help you know address this is to support the people under 30 who are actually trying to do something in this industry and imagine he, he works for a very big publication right imagine how helpful it would have been for my company if back in 2020 he wrote about it Yes, but I think I know who you're talking about, and he doesn't do that. And he's he claims to be an outsider, but is really very much on the inside of wine. So I think that's a it's a bit of a challenge in that way. And it is true that who's dominating the scene is older people who have a closed door attitude, even if they seem friendly. And that's always been my problem. And that's why I do what I do is. I actually couldn't give a crap about how old anyone is. I it doesn't matter to me. It's an attitude and it's there are certain people I've met so many thousands and thousands of people in my time in wine and what I've noticed is that there are personality types and we never focus on that. We focus more on money and who's spending what where and if we were a little bit more interested in humanism and thinking about like what the things that you and I think about which is who's on the other end of the transaction and if you don't pay attention to that then the whole industry is not doing anything because I don't care about the three-tier system if no one drinks yeah. wine we have no industry anymore and if you don't invite people to do it and you don't make it so that it's fun and interesting we're not in brain surgery so you have to find another way. It's things people do in their leisure time. And if they feel stressed out about it because there's a Nebbiolo glass and there's a Chenin Blanc glass and there's yes. a Riesling glass and a Sauvignon Blanc glass, what is somebody supposed to think when they're just getting into wine? They're like, fine, I'll go have a beer. That's what they think. And that's what a lot of people do because it's not very inviting. My main problem is 
We just don't invite people. There's no invitation. And you and I are trying our best. We can't do it alone. But I mean, anybody's welcome in the tent. But then you get into those things where people, yeah, you, know, yeah, you try to you try to um, penetrate that inner circle. And then you find out that it's pretty darn locked down, isn't it? One of the things about wine is that it's definitely marketed towards uh, higher income people and more urban people. If you look at the distribution of of wine sales, it's like the 80% of the sales comes from the top 2% of the cities or something. That's right. Whereas beer, it's very different. Beer is sold a lot everywhere. So wine definitely has this elitism thing Mm -hmm. and we're trying to make wine well, we're we're making wine glasses, but hopefully they're drinking wine out of them. We try to make wine glasses more widely available to a greater number of people. And that's partly what's driving the creation of GV Home is, you know, there are, there's the number of people who are willing to spend $25 of wine glasses so much higher than um, $40 of wine glass. And there's probably people listening to this that are like, Oh, well, you're still selling a glass for $25. That's still like a rich man's product or whatever. And I'm like, well, just wait another four years. We'll see what happens. Maybe we'll do one that's $12, you know? (laughs) That that may be true. But I think that people listening to the show are thinking, you know, they're thinking different things, which is that maybe it's time to invest in glassware. Or could you get something that's a Zalto competitor that is that much less? And I'm telling the listeners, yes, you have done an amazing thing by opening the door. I think the invitation is there. I think it's so fantastic that you've done this because it, needed to happen. And it's frustrating for people when they can't afford to have that luxury, but they want it because it's not because it's pretty or because it's fancy. It's because it actually does improve the wine experience. And this is a very different situation than building a prettier watch or a nice pair of earrings. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that may be out of reach for people to get those really top end glasses, but they can afford yours because it's two for $80. And that is a really good price for people who really, really love wine. And they can't see their way to spending $85 on one wine glass. That's a tough sell. So I think you've done a great job. I think you're very cool and very grounded. You're going to do great things. It's just nice to talk to you because Your head is screwed on straight about the consumer, (laughs) which is in the end, I rarely talk to people that even understand that, that even understand that ultimately the experience of the people that are listening to this show, that's really what matters. And unfortunately, in this industry, that's just not what people think about enough. So good for you. So it's glass.vin, G-L-A-S dot V-I-N, right? Yes. And so you can order all of these glasses there. Please check it out. My new website will be launching soon, and I'll have a link to Glassvin on my site right now. My site's a little wonky, but I I will be able to do that so you guys can see that and link to it. I mean, this is definitely my glass of choice. So I'm so excited to have connected with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and look forward to connecting more in the future. Absolutely. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.